Welcome to Gathering Gold, a podcast for highly sensitive souls. I'm Cheryl Paul, a counselor trained in the Jungian depth psychological tradition. And I'm Victoria Russell, Cheryl's niece and co-host. This podcast explores some of the themes highlighted in my book, The Wisdom of Anxiety, and my Conscious Transitions blog. Join us as we dive into the realms of our inner worlds to ask deep questions, grow more self-trust and self-love, and embrace sensitivity, creativity, and the rhythms of the natural world. If you would like to connect with me, Victoria, and others in the Gathering Gold listener community and support the podcast to help us continue our work, please consider joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash gatheringgold. To learn more about Cheryl's course offerings, including courses to support you in breaking free from anxiety in all forms, learning to trust yourself, and becoming more comfortable with uncertainty, please visit Cheryl's website, conscious-transitions.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Cheryl is at Wisdom of Anxiety, and I am at Perennials Podcast. Thank you for listening. Hello, Gathering Gold friends. I am recording this episode solo today because Cheryl has been a bit under the weather. So she's taking some time to rest, and she and I will be recording together soon, but In the meantime, I decided to ask our Patreon community friends if they had any topic suggestions or questions that they would like to hear me address in today's episode. And so the responses that I got just, uh, I know I've known already that if you listen to this podcast and you enjoy it, we are kindred spirits. But when I read these questions, I was like, Yep, we really found each other. Like they spoke so directly to my heart. So thank you. And I'm just going to do my best. They're big questions, questions about things that have fascinated me for years and years. And so I'll just do my best to share from my experience, obviously not as an expert, but just from, from my life experience and things that I've learned along the way. So Diana on our Patreon page said, I have always wanted to hear your thoughts on growing up and resistance to growing up throughout your 20s, if that's a thing for other people. I don't know if you've ever struggled with this, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on overcoming the resistance to responsibility and adulthood. Oh boy, (laughs) have I ever struggled with this only every day of my life (laughs) thus far? No. It's gotten better. I've definitely made progress. So there's hope. But this question of resistance to growing up has quite literally been at the center of so many things for me from a very young age. When I first thought about this question, I was going to start by talking about my 20s and starting my podcast perennials. That's how my podcasting journey started was wanting to do a podcast for people in their 20s and myself included who wanted to ask questions around what it means to grow up because I was struggling with that so much and I was fascinated by it. 
But then when I really thought about it, I had this vivid memory of being nine years old and realizing I was halfway to 18 and feeling just utter dread, just awful dread. And I, I and I had struggled before that too, but this very particular moment of being like, how did this happen? I'm already halfway to 18 and 18 means adult. And I have, oh my gosh, like I can't, this is going too fast. And I don't remember when this started. I don't know if it started before or after I was nine, but you know, I have OCD and I would do things like, you know, the classic, like walking between cracks in the sidewalk, not stepping on the cracks in the sidewalk and tapping my fingers a certain number of times. And I would specifically tap my fingers 18 times. Um, And that wasn't a coincidence. It was symbolic. (laughs) It had something to do with my fear of growing up, of turning 18. So I don't know why 18 became like a talisman number because I would do the finger tapping to calm myself, but it definitely was related in some way. I remember after that that nine-year-old moment of panic, I started like holding my dad's hand when we crossed the street again, as if I if I just acted like a child again, I could somehow preserve my childhood longer and make it last longer and try to soak it in. So it makes me think about the fear of death. I mean, just to jump right in there with the light stuff. Um, you know, Cheryl and I talked about the the four kind of main focuses of existential therapy around, you know, fear of death, of um, meaninglessness, isolation, and freedom. I think they all come into play here, but the fear of death, I think, is really strong. And growing up means growing older, and it means everyone around us grows older. And so part of it is, for me, that fear of loss and change and the suffering that some people experience, I mean, throughout as life goes on and in old age, you know, if they get sick. So the fear of death is very strong in that and very present for me. I also, as I've talked about before, had a lot of separation anxiety throughout my, I mean, not just my childhood, throughout my life. (laughs) And I think those things were tied together. We have a whole episode on separation anxiety, but growing up also means, you know, a lot of the time, depending on the culture you live in and things like that, when you grow up, there's some sort of leaving home. There's some sort of individuation and separation from family. And so for a kid with a ton of separation anxiety, what could be scarier than you know, in my mind, it was going to be like one moment all of a sudden I was 18 and I would leave home and, you know, everything would be different and the world would, my world would fall apart. And I couldn't, I couldn't foresee being a capable adult, <laughs> you know, I could only think of it from a, a child's mind. But that separation anxiety has made growing up difficult. You know, I didn't move out of my parents' house until I was 27. And a huge part of that was financial, 
But I think a bit of it was also my separation anxiety, honestly. But I think something, it's kind of the the other side of the coin of that separation anxiety and fear of leaving home and individuating is the fear of enmeshment and loss of self. So when I did get into my early 20s and young adulthood, I suddenly was really afraid of things like marriage and parenthood that could be in an adult future, not necessarily, but those are paths that a lot of people take. And I felt such fear of enmeshment, of never finding myself and or losing myself in family relationships. And also fear of leaving my family of origin to create my own family. It didn't feel right. It felt like bad or wrong or just impossible. And at the same time, I had this deep desire to find myself and be a self and individuate. So these very conflicting forces, I I felt a lot of tension and contradiction and I suffered with that. I also think that because of the various types of anxiety that I had, you know, separation anxiety, panic attacks, OCD, I had avoided a lot of things for many years, like my whole life. And so I didn't feel as strong and capable and confident as perhaps I could have if I had found my way to less avoidance. But I think I arrived at the threshold of adulthood feeling a bit stunted and unsure of myself and and just not feeling that great about my capabilities. I really tried to push through and I did push myself to learn all sorts of things um, that scared me and to do things that scared me. But Again, I've often had this like foot in, foot out. So it would be like, okay, I took an internship in New York City. I learned how to drive on the highway and parallel park and mow the lawn and um, just various things. Uh, there's, There's a certain independent streak in me that has really tried to do things for myself. And then another streak that has tried to stay safe and avoid other things. So that was part of it too, just not feeling necessarily that capable, not feeling like an adult and being afraid of the responsibilities of being an adult. I think in addition to just wondering, am I capable of handling adult responsibilities? I also just wasn't in right relationship with responsibility. As a kid, I felt so much responsibility that was outsized for various reasons. I just, I felt very, very responsible for things that were not my responsibility from a very young age. And so I just wasn't in right relationship with responsibility. And as a, a young, you know, a teenager, a young adult, like I just, I felt like I just wanted to push it aside. Like I was like, I do not want that. I can't handle it. It's overwhelming. It's too much. So it was again, kind of this like extreme, like either everything in the world is my responsibility or I don't want any of it, please. 
And I think when we talk about responsibility, we're in the realm of grappling with freedom because as the existential philosophers and psychotherapists point out, humans have this kind of tense relationship with freedom where we crave it, we want it, and we also fear it. So part of resistance to growing up, I think, is the loss of some freedom. I remember when I was finishing college in my last semester, I was going around to different professors that I really admired and felt like I had a good relationship with. And I was essentially just kind of asking them, like, what should I do? <laughs> like, I just didn't know what I was going to do after graduation. And I remember one professor sitting me down and being like, okay, so, you know, you can go to a temp agency and get a job. And and I was just like, a temp agency? Like, just a random job? Like, in a gray cubicle somewhere? Like, right away, right out of college. And I felt so sad in my soul. And just the idea that suddenly, you know, I was going to have to give eight hours a day, five days a week of my life to work and not knowing what I wanted to do and possibly, you know, sit at a computer, at a desk, inside, potentially in like a windowless office, you know, it just felt terrible to my soul. And I will say, I think there's some wisdom in that. Like we know that living like very sedentary lives where we're inside the vast majority of the time and we're working on computers, like isn't really that good for us. Um, and so it's not like that's a wrong or bad resistance. Um, but I think just in general, like becoming an adult and realizing that work and making money and having like developing some security for yourself is going to be a huge, a huge part of your life that you have to think about and figure out. And that's going to like take away that freedom of just being a kid who can, you know, ideally have a, a full summer break and just lie in the grass and look up at the trees and read your book and swing on your tire swing. Like there's a loss of freedom there. And it can feel like a harsh slap of reality. I think that's also hard if, like me, if you are kind of a bit of a romantic type who engaged in a lot of fantasy when you were growing up, like that can make it tricky too. Like I was always just fantasizing about like the Prince Charming who was going to rescue me from my life and my feelings and my low self-esteem. <laughs> and I think becoming an adult is also realizing like, oh, again, thinking about responsibility, like there's no one who's going to just come rescue you from life. Like you have to live it and take care of yourself in certain ways with help from other people, of course. Like we have to be part of communities and have support networks and all of that. But on a fundamental level, there's a certain amount that no one can do for us. And there's not some sort of like movie magic rescue moment where we live happily ever after. 
So I think there can be some loss of like also that fantasy or magical kind of thinking, which ultimately I think is a good thing. But overall, there can be a lot of disillusionment that happens as we grow up and as we enter adulthood. You know, for me, I grew up feeling pretty, pretty strong about aligning with the values I was raised with, like growing up in the Catholic church. And then in college, I feel like that's where I really started to grapple with, you know, I'm not sure I agree with this dogma. You know, I don't like all of these judgments and rules around sexuality. And what does that mean then? And where do I find my sense of meaning? And that can also be really tricky to grapple with as we grow up. There might be some resistance to grappling with some of the disillusionment, some of the deconstruction that might happen of values or institutions or, you know, religion or family systems or cultures that we are realizing we're not sure we're aligned with anymore. And that's hard work too. <laughs> but I think when it comes to overcoming the resistance to growing up, you know, I've spoken from my very specific personal experiences around it. But I think for anyone exploring what's underneath that resistance, what are some of the core fears? What are some of our beliefs about what it means to be an adult, about what it means to take responsibility? You know, what did we see modeled around adulthood and responsibility by the adults that we grew up with? can also help us to think about what we do want and maybe try to find some other modeling. If it's available, of course, like working through these things with a therapist is really amazing because you can talk through some of those core fears, those core beliefs that you might be negotiating with yourself. You can tend to some of those childhood wounds that might be embedded in the fear of growing up. And that can just be so powerful. I know it's not available to everyone, um, but it's been so helpful to me. Some of the things that I've learned as I've worked with these fears and beliefs is that, yes, we have more responsibility in adulthood, and sometimes that can be overwhelming there are things that are really difficult and there is freedom that comes with adulthood that is really beautiful at times like there's so much that we can't control as children the freedom that we come to in adulthood in terms of making choices for ourselves can be really empowering and liberating and the thing is we also we don't lose the child and the teenager and the young adult that we were, we integrate those and we bring them with us and we get to take their gifts with us and learn from them still and be reminded of things by them and heal things with them. So although we have to let go of certain things, we also bring certain things with us along the way. And I think working through some of those existential questions around the themes of fear of death and fear of isolation and fear of meaninglessness and fear of freedom, naming those categories, we can look at 
the invitations inside each of them, you know, the invitation to move toward life, to take healthy risks and face our fears for the things that we value and desire, to connect with ourselves and connect with other people, to take responsibility for our choices, but not be overwhelmed by over-responsibility and find the good and the beauty in having choice. And we're invited to create meaning for ourselves, to exercise our creativity and explore to see what feels really meaningful for us now. Diana, I don't know if that was way more than you were asking or bargaining for, but I, as you can see, as you can hear, I've been thinking about this for a long time. So you really spoke to my heart. The next question that came through the Patreon is really connected to this one. I think it flows really nicely. This was from Sydney who said, I'd love to hear you talk about the journey to understanding your own needs, wants, and values. I am entering the second half of my 20s and continue to struggle with ambivalence about pretty much everything. I almost constantly feel like a fraud in my decisions and feel like I want opposing things at the same time. This was definitely touched on in the episode about grieving unlived lives, but how does one actually make decisions in the present when you don't feel that you know yourself? And how do you get to know yourself? Sydney, I feel like my past self wrote this and sent it to me. Like, I can't tell you how deeply I relate to this and how I truly could have written this a few years ago. There were so many times that I would just sit there in tears saying, like, I don't know what I want. I don't know what I should do. And just like you said, yeah, feeling like a fraud or just being so aware of my ambivalence and so torn between opposing things. So the image that came to me as I was thinking about this question was when we get into our 20s, it's kind of like we wake up in a house, a house that we were born in, but suddenly we are holding the deed. It's our house. And now we have to decide what do we want to keep the same and what do we want to remodel and how do we want to decorate it? And we start to deconstruct things and suddenly we're living in a mess, in a construction zone, and we're losing our minds. We're like, where's the contractor? They said they would be here, um, but this place is still a mess and I don't know what to do. I'm not an electrician. I don't know how to wire this. But we start to rebuild and we do receive help from other people, but we also have to make a lot of choices along the way. And I think it goes on throughout our lives. I don't think it's just in our 20s. I think, you know, as people grow, they might put an addition on their house. They might one day decide to turn the attic into a writing studio. You know, they might hang new pictures on the wall and rip down old wallpaper. There might be a storm and a tree falls on the roof and they have to have that taken care of. You know, the roof needs to be repaired. Life just keeps going. So it's not one and done, but I do think a lot of it starts to happen in a really disruptive way in young adulthood. 
So the first thing I want to say is that, okay, you're probably in like a little bit of a construction phase and it's overwhelming, but there's also something really beautiful about what you're sharing. The fact that you are aware of your different parts and you're not just like totally pushing that down. We all experience ambivalence, everyone. But I do think some people maybe experience more of it. I do think some people are more aware of it and or are more judgmental of themselves when they experience ambivalence and maybe more afraid of it. So it's in everyone's life, but we all might experience it a little bit differently. But I think being aware of these multitudes, you know, it's like there's that famous quote from Walt Whitman's poem, Son of Myself, that long epic poem. And there's that one section where he says, do I contradict myself? Very well then, I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. He's like celebrating it. He's like sassy. Like, yeah, I'm large. I contain multitudes. You and me, Sydney, and probably everyone else listening, we are large. We contain multitudes. And we can actually celebrate that. And there's a beauty in that mystery. And also it can be really frustrating sometimes and (laughs) overwhelming. But I think that, you know, what I hear from you is that you don't want just like a cookie cutter McMansion. That's not the home that you're building for yourself. You're like restoring an old craftsman and you're looking at every single doorknob and light switch plate and tile and you want it to be beautiful and thoughtfully chosen and yours. I hear that you want authenticity. I hear that as a value when you say that you feel like a fraud. Sometimes the things that we feel bad about can kind of almost point us to some values. Like, well, if you don't want to be a fraud, I hear that as you want to be authentic. And I don't think that you are a fraud, by the way. But um, yeah, I, I, I could be wrong, but I hear a value of authenticity in that, which I also share. When you talk about you know, not feeling like you know yourself and what you want, need, and value, again, I think some of that is very developmentally appropriate. Like, in young adulthood, a lot of people, and throughout again, throughout life, but it can be especially pronounced in young adulthood when people are trying to figure out who they are. I also think some of us, including myself, maybe feel particularly disconnected or estranged from ourselves because we have been paying a lot of attention to what other people want, need, and value, and not as much attention to what we want, need, and value because for whatever reason, it has felt safer to focus on others. And so I just want to say that can be so unfamiliar and sometimes painful and scary to actually focus on ourselves. And I feel that deep in my bones when I moved out of my parents' house and moved into my first apartment. You know, if there was a weekend where my roommate and my housemate were away and Martin was off fighting a fire or whatever. If I had a Saturday with no plans, I would sit there and I would start sobbing because I didn't know what I wanted to do with a free Saturday. And I felt so torn between like, I should go visit my family. No, I should connect with a friend I haven't seen in a while. No, I should have some alone time. I should go for a walk. No, I should go grocery shopping. I don't know what I want. And I would get so overwhelmed because I hadn't really had that much space and time to think about what I wanted. 
And I also judged myself so harshly for not just knowing. I was like, what's wrong with me? You know? So I think those things can go hand in hand. Like we focus on others and we might judge ourselves really harshly in general. And I just think this this calls for so much patience and compassion. Like if you're like me, and maybe you're not, <laughs> if this isn't speaking to you, I'm sorry, or if this isn't you, but I know for me, like I spent decades really trying to hone in on what other people wanted and make sure I was you know, I was trying to make them happy. And um, so like, it's going to take some time to learn a different way and get to know myself in a, in a different way. It just requires, like, sometimes I would literally put my hand on my chest and like speak to myself really soothingly. Like, it's okay. It's okay. You're just learning about this. That's okay. But I think, you know, I was also really afraid of making mistakes and really good at catastrophizing. So when it comes to decisions, it felt so impossible (laughs) because I was so afraid of making mistakes and I just wanted to do things perfectly and I just wanted to find the right answer. And of course there wasn't one. And I shared on my Instagram a while ago that I was trying to choose between two job offers in my mid-20s. And I was really hemming and hawing and talking to a lot of people trying to decide between a digital marketing startup that I had been working for part-time and the poetry festival. And there were pros and cons about both. And someone said to me, you know, at a certain point, make a decision and then make it right. And what they were saying was, Make your decision and then make that one the right decision with what you do next. Even if you end up changing your mind, like learn from it, you know, find the good in it, give it your all. And that was really helpful to me. It really was that framing. I've carried it with me ever since. And I think what I've seen as I've gone through life a little bit is just that a lot of decisions are not actually irreversible. They're not as, you know, the outcome is not as like catastrophic as we think it might be. You know, if you take a job and you don't like it, it's not easy, but, you know, like we can try to find another job. Something that I've noticed is like really decisive people. It's not that they have it all figured out. It's not that they've figured it all out forever or that they never change their minds. It's just that they have a certain confidence in the moment that this is what they're going with. But I've watched my most decisive loved ones change their minds really resolutely, you know, the next day or the next year or 10 years in the future about things they felt really strongly about at the time. And there, you know, I, we need all types of people in this world. I'm so grateful for my very decisive loved ones. But I'm just trying to say that it's not like they have some superpower of certainty that we don't have. I think at the end of the day, that fear of making mistakes and making decisions, like there's that that fear of loss. That's what I've encountered. It's this fear of like, in the future, I'm going to encounter loss because of this decision, or maybe immediately, like 
you know, <laughs> when I was in my early 20s and I had just started dating Martin, my ex-boyfriend from college wanted to get back together. And that was a decision <laughs> that I had to make. And there was immediate loss, right? Like that was really, really closing the door on that relationship. And then of course there was Martin. <laughs> and so there was this beautiful person that that I was moving towards, but I didn't have certainty that things would go the way that they've gone with us. I had a good feeling about him. <laughs> so I yeah, that that fear of loss, I think, is embedded in that desire for certainty. And so like learning to be with my feelings more has been helpful actually in this area in general. I think part of getting to know ourselves is being with ourselves in whatever we are experiencing, whatever we're feeling. And instead of judging it and saying, oh, you're such a fraud, you know, or you're you're so you're so dramatic or why can't you just be more chill or like whatever the voices are, just being with ourselves. And that can be really scary if we haven't known how to do that before. So again, a therapist is great if accessible. Um, One of the best things my therapist has really helped me to practice is just noticing, just noticing what comes up. And that has helped me get to know myself better and what I want and need and value. Simply noticing what's arising in the moment. Life gives us, we don't even have to seek it out. Every single day things come up and we have reactions and we can notice them. And we don't have to immediately attach a story about what it means. That's the that's the impulse and the urge is like, oh, I'm noticing this about myself, so it must mean this conclusion. It's not necessarily like that. It's literally just like, I'm noticing right now. Okay, I'm noticing. And one of the things we can notice is when we are in or when we are out of our window of tolerance. This concept has helped me so much. So for example, when Martin and I first started dating in the early years when we would go hiking or backpacking, camping together, I would struggle because Martin, you know, is this young, fit, adventurous guy who could hike 20 miles in a day and pitch his hammock on the side of a mountain in the wilderness and just be super happy. And I was so conflicted because I was like, I want to hike. I want to be outside, but why am I getting so upset on these hikes and these trips? Like, I should just push myself more to be who I want to be, who I want to be for him, who I want to be for me, this adventure outdoorsy girl who can hang, who can go on the 15-mile hike, who can pitch her hammock in the wilderness. I've done those things um, with varying degrees of emotional upset. And what I learned was I was just outside my window of tolerance. And what that looks like is either hypoarousal, you know, shutting down, or hyperarousal, freaking out. And when we're outside of the window of tolerance, we can't learn things. We can't make good decisions. We can't regulate our emotions. Like we're just gone. And so noticing when we're out of the window of tolerance is very helpful because, again, without judgment, and this is where other people can be really helpful, 
other people who love us that we trust can reflect some of this to us when we're struggling. You know, one of my best friends would say to me like, Victoria, I don't think you want to do that 15-mile hike because this, this, and this happens and that's okay, (laughs) you know? And it's not about her telling me who I am and what I want, just her reflecting to me what I'm sharing with her and giving me a more non-judgmental view on it. Learning about the concept of the window of tolerance was really helpful for me in terms of trying to like take those risks and explore my comfort zone and stretch my comfort zone to learn more about who I am because I think the only way we can learn is just by trying things. And the thing about working with a good therapist is that they can help us to stretch our window of tolerance, to make that window bigger over time, but to do that incrementally instead of throwing ourselves out the window and then being like, oh, why am I not doing well? So we can we can stretch that window, and I have. So, um, you know, now I know the types of hikes that I will really enjoy. I know how I can stretch without going too far. I mean, I still it still happens sometimes. That's okay, but I know a lot more about how to stay in that window better and stretch that window. And so now, you know, I love my little forest bath walks. I love certain types of hikes. Um, certain types of rock climbing, but I'm not going to like throw myself out the window. And so Martin and I get to enjoy each other a lot more. I used to always feel like I was letting him down or I would disappoint him and I hated that and I just, I couldn't stand that. But it's not that fun, you know, to go on a hike with someone who is um, bawling their eyes out on the way down, you know, like it happens, but that's not the most fun way it can go. So I think... I think some really interesting cut through questions we can ask ourselves when we're trying to get to know ourselves better better is when are we in flow? You know, what are the things that when we do them, we forget to eat or we stay up too late, but we're like, we're just so jazzed about it. We're just so, we're so in the flow that we're just really focused and we're really enjoying it and we feel lit up. And my therapist has helped reflect that to me. Like she's really good at noticing when I'm talking about something like podcasting or my counseling class, she's really good at pointing out like, wow, that sounds like you're in flow. And of course I want to like question that and (laughs) poke a hole in it and be like, oh, but I don't know. But no, like I know, I, I know it's true. Again, it doesn't necessarily give me an answer to anything but it gives me some good information about helping me get to know myself and just try and make some decisions and live with those decisions for a while and see how things go. Like I'm in this counseling graduate program. I made that decision. I don't know if I'll actually like being a therapist because I've never done it before. I'm moving forward with enough information and enough confidence that this is what I want to try but I'm actually not holding on to the outcome so much. The outcome is no longer like, oh, therapist will give me an identity and then I will know who I am and I will feel that I have worth. My therapist also said to me as I was navigating this decision around graduate school, she said, stay in the inquiry. 
And at first I was like, oh, I don't want to be in the inquiry. I want the answer. I want to know who I am and why I matter and where I can find meaning. And can you just tell me, will I be good at counseling or is it too much? Will I be overwhelmed? Will I not be able to handle it? She can't answer that. (laughs) And I can't answer it yet either. And I'm actually not attached anymore to, you know, you know, I have to be a therapist in order to to feel like I've found my meaning in life. I'm more just interested in following, following that inquiry, being in it, following the things where I do feel like I'm in flow. I do feel like I am feeding and nourishing my curiosity and my inner flame. And I trust that that will lead me somewhere good if I keep my eyes open and my heart open and I just try to stay awake, you know? Another question I like to ask myself is like in in thinking about curiosity and inquiry, like what would I like to know more about? One way to to know that is like what are what are the tabs you have open on your phone or your laptop? Like what are you Googling? What articles are you reading? Again, that's not it doesn't give you a quick answer about anything, but it gives you information about like the places that your mind goes and like what you're really fascinated by. Like Seven years ago, I was just fascinated by deep philosophical questions about existence. And now, you know, I got to be in in my counseling theories class learning about existential philosophy and an existential approach to psychotherapy and going like, oh my gosh, I've been wanting to have this conversation with people for years. And now I get to, I get to have this conversation with other people who care about these questions just as much. And that's beautiful. So, of course, we don't want to be like stuck in the mud and muck of ambivalence and indecision forever. But I do also want to say I think there's beauty in being a person who cares really deeply, who probably has a lot of ideals and who is aware of their multitudes and other people's multitudes. There's beauty in that. There truly is. So, you know, sometimes I remember I remember driving down the parkway one day, driving to work and listening to Rob Bell's podcast and just thinking, you know, and he he was a pastor, now he's like an author and a speaker and a very kind of expansive version of a Christian and I was just thinking to myself, wow, like mystery is really exciting too. Like as much as I can get overwhelmed and frustrated, it also is really, really amazing and beautiful to be in the mystery of life and to be intrigued by it and to not know everything. You may have heard this quote by the poet Rilke, who um, was writing letters to a young poet, and I want to share it with you. Someone shared it with me when I was in my early 20s. Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves, like locked rooms and like books that are now written in a very foreign tongue. Do not now seek the answers which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. don't have all the answers now. I 
I don't even have an answer, but I do feel like I've lived along into knowing myself better, knowing what I want and need and value more today than I did in my 20s, even my late 20s. And I would just say, stay with yourself. Just stay with yourself and see if you can love the questions a little bit, even just a little bit from time to time. And see if you can just learn a little bit about what it means to love yourself in all the ambivalence and all the opposition. If you can love that person who is so thoughtful, so sensitive, so smart, so caring, so aware and full of the multitudes. Do we contradict ourselves? Very well, we contradict ourselves. We are large We contain multitudes and we can own it. (laughs) Thank you all so much for listening. I'm going to stop there because I have been talking so much. There were a few other questions that were so beautiful and I'm hoping I can address them in a bonus episode. So thank you to everyone who shared them. And if you're interested in checking out the Patreon at all, I'm going to be hosting what I call a spinning gold creativity meetup on zoom on sunday july 30th 4 to 5 30 p.m eastern time for patreons of the meetup member tier so if you're interested in checking that out you can go to patreon.com slash gathering gold and we can spend some time together doing some making i'm so grateful to you all and i'm wishing you well